Deuteronomy chapter 16, it's on page 188. Unfortunately, we do not have children's church today because we're moving today. Uh, if you remember, this is Blue Jean Sunday. So uh, this is the day when we're emptying out the trailers and moving everything, so all the classrooms are, are in disarray. So I'm sure you kids here, though, will listen and focus on God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 16, page 188. And this morning we're looking at 16, 18 verses uh, through chapter 17, verse 13. So let me read the text. It says, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God, and do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command, has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them, or to the sun, or the moon, or the stars of the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, Take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, Take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the priests who are Levites and to the judge who is in office at the time. Inquire of them and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they direct you to do. Act according to the law they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they will tell you to the right or to the left. The man who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there before the Lord your God must be put to death. You must purge the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. As we just sang in that song, our God is a just and righteous God. Everything He does is just. Everything He does is righteous. And therefore, as His people, He calls us to reflect His justice and His righteousness. God's people and His church are to be a just and righteous church. We're to reflect those character qualities. You know, what a novel idea in a world that is so filled with injustice. You know, we've uh, watched this this spring uh, and events in the Middle East unfolding. Uh, it's now been dubbed the Arab Spring as uh, revolt after revolt has taken place in Tunisia, Egypt, Syria, Yemen, 
all, all these different countries, people rising up. And it's been pretty remarkable to behold. And, it, and the main sort of theme that kind of unifies this is this cry for justice, uh, that the people there who are rising up perceive that they have been underneath oppressive and unjust leadership and, and regimes and dictatorships. They, they believe they have not received their basic human rights. And so there's this rising up and this crying out. But it's not just in the Middle East. We've all experienced injustice. We experience inequities, unfairness, favoritism, backroom deals. It's not who, you know, what you know or how good you are. It's who you know, you know we find in the job market, which it's not totally right, is it? I mean, it should be based on merits and fairness. I mean, there's something in this that says, but where's the fairness? You know, you kids in school, isn't it frustrating when your teacher isn't fair? And you're like, that's not fair, you know. They treated that student this way and they treated me that way. And then, you know, that's the cry of little children. It's not fair. Sometimes parents aren't fair. But, but what if God has called the church to be sort of an island of justice and fairness in a world of injustice. We know that the new heavens and the new earth someday are going to be the home of righteousness. What if the church is called to be an outpost, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of that righteousness today in a world where people know innately that we long for justice and fairness. We just never taste it. We never really experience it that often. And yet God calls His people to be a shining gem of, of justice and righteousness against the, the black velvet backdrop of the injustice of this world. And so we looked this morning at Deuteronomy 16, and it's all about justice and fairness and equity. And uh, as you look at Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, we're kind of turning a corner in Deuteronomy. Since about chapter 12 of Deuteronomy up till now, it's been all about the worship of God's people, laws about tithing, laws about offerings, laws about what holy days there are. But now with, with chapter 16, verse 18, there's kind of a, a pivot that now takes us into a, a several chapters that have to do with the leadership of God's people. And, and right off the bat, we get a focus upon justice. So what does it mean for God's people to be just and righteous in everything that they do? And I'd like to just suggest uh, our text this morning shows us at least two ways that God's people are to express God's justice and His righteousness and His equity among themselves. And, and I think not only for Israel, but there's uh, instruction here for us uh, in God's church today. So the first thing is this. The first way that God's people are to reflect God's justice is by having impartial leadership. To be people who are impartial, who don't show favorites. Look at, again, verse 18. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. So here's Israel. They're going into the promised land. They're going to settle the promised land. They're going to break up into all these towns. But you can just imagine, it's not going to be utopia. There are going to be disagreements. There's going to be fights. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be laws that are broken. And how do you deal with that? Well, there's this plan, okay? Uh, you need judges in every town. Figure out who uh, the wise and fair people are and put them as judges in the town. And, and they're the ones who are going to settle these cases. Um, typically this was done at the city gate. You'd bring your case to the city gate and there would be the elders who were respected by the community and they would make render decisions about cases based upon the law of God. And so they would study God's law and they would make decisions based upon that. And, and what's the main qualification for these people? They have to be fair. 
You know, that basic, that little kid thing. It's not fair. Well, these people need to judge fairly. What does that look like? Verse 19. Number one, do not pervert justice. Don't twist justice. But by the way, I keep saying justice. What's justice? You know, a, a very simple definition of justice is getting what you deserve. A real simple definition. Get what you deserve. So that implies both if you break a law, you get what you deserve. But it also means that you get the rights that you deserve. So justice has both a, a, a retribution side to it of, of punishment for crime, but justice also carries the idea of giving rights to one, you know, sort of basic human rights. You know, we consider these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they've been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And so there's this idea that they're basic human rights. So justice can often mean punishment for a criminal, but it can also mean making sure the widow and the alien and, and the, the, uh, the orphan have a voice and that their rights are protected even if they're not sort of uh, powerful people within society. So, so justice has all of those connotations in Scripture. Justice means those things. It's giving people what they deserve within a certain context, kind of a simple definition of it. So, so don't twist justice. Make sure people get what they deserve based upon what God's Word teaches do not show partiality, verse 19. I, I love that, that Hebrew, it's, this is the translation here, show partiality. The Hebrew is really cool. It's don't regard faces. It's do not, there's a negative, regard, in other words, consider faces. So when people come before the judges with issues, don't be looking at who it is that's bringing it to you. You know, don't be like, oh, well, that's so-and-so. I mean, they're kind of the selectmen of the town, and, you know, they... Uh, they did, you know, give a lot to build the, the local, uh, you know, grocery store or whatever. I mean, you know, and, and that person, well, geez, he's an alien. He's not even from here. Yeah, he probably did do it, you know. I mean, don't, you don't think that way. Don't show favoritism. Don't regard faces, whether someone is powerful or weak or it's someone you like or someone you don't like because you had a bad experience with their donkey and your ox and, you know, whatever. It's like when you come to judge, it's like the faces have to go away. And it has to be based upon the Word of God and the facts at hand. It needs to not regard faces. It's not partial. And then, of course, verse 19, do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Uh, a bribe is absolute poison for justice. It kills justice. I mean, what's more maddening than when you hear on the news that some politician took a bribe or is getting paid by some special interest group and that's why they're lobbying for this or that. I mean, it's just, I don't, maybe it doesn't bother you. That stuff just makes me like, ah! <laughs> you, you just want to give up on the whole thing. You know, bribery, it just ruins justice. It ruins civil order. It's a, it's a terrible kind of thing to take bribes and to, not, to turn justice, especially when people's lives are at stake and their livelihoods. And so he hammers it home in verse 20. Follow justice and justice alone so that you get with God's blessing. You'll live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. God's leaders and his, among His people must be just. They must do what's fair and right based upon God's Word and not based upon any kind of partiality. Because you know what? That's how God is. Look at this interesting little verse. Turn back to Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is God. He is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And so God is impartial. God is fair. God cares about justice. And so his people should too. We, we reflect that characteristic. You know, it's just as important in the New Testament church for leaders in the church to be impartial. Um, whether you're an elder in the church, a pastor, a staff person, whether you lead a Bible study, whether you teach a Sunday school class, whether you the chairman of a committee, perhaps you're the, the leader of a ministry, is one of the things we have to strive for. Anyone who has any kind of leadership role is fairness and impartiality to treat all members of the church equally. Uh, you know, one of the things we talk about on, uh, among the elders of the church is this idea that if you're an elder, you're an elder of the whole church. Once you become an elder, you're, you're to, to be a loving shepherd of every member of the church. You know, the elder board is not a representative government. It's not like, well, I'm the elder here, and, and I'm here to speak up for the old people. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm the elder to speak up for the young single people. Well, I'm the elder for the blue-collar guys. Well, I'm the elder for, you, you know, the people who like chihuahuas and, um, you know, enjoy the color blue or whatever. I mean, you know, it, it can get really silly. It's like... If I can't be a pastor and an elder to lovingly shepherd and pray for every member of the church, I should not be in that role. That's impartiality. It's, it's saying, look, this isn't about me as a person. This is about an office that I hold. And part of being in that office is that I'm representing the shepherding love of Christ for his whole church. And I'm, I'm helping implement that. I'm helping represent Christ's Loving shepherding of the church. So, so when elders make decisions, they can't make decisions when they have to say yes or no. When elders, they can't make decisions based upon who they like or who's bringing the, an issue to them. It has to be based on this, God's word. This is what has to guide our church's decisions, as you know, as, as much as possible. We have to con- constantly look back at this, which is why one of the chief qualifications for elders is they have to be able to teach the word of God. So that the people making decisions among God's people have to know what God says in order to make godly decisions. And so it's really important for for elders to be that way. But you know, it's not just elders. It's not just pastors. It's not just people on a church staff who need to be impartial. This should be just the atmosphere of the whole church. We should be a people who don't broach favoritism. We we don't uh, participate in it. You know, look at this. Put a bookmark here in Deuteronomy 16. Turn to James chapter 2. You ever seen this in James? James chapter 2. It's on page 1196. This isn't just for the leaders. It's for all of us. James chapter 2, page 1196. He says in James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. 
Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In fact, he gets really blatant down at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Favoritism is really annoying, but have you ever thought of it as sin? That God hates favoritism in that kind of sense? Showing special favor to certain people because of their social class and, and their standing? So it shouldn't be in the church either. I mean, I mean, let's just put this on the table. We all have preferences when it comes to other people. Let's just be honest. We're all naturally drawn to some kinds of people and we're all, we all feel comfortable with some kinds of people and we all feel less comfortable with other kinds of people. And it usually comes out of our life experience. Uh, you know, it's, it's our life experience affected by sin. <laughs> so, so we have certain life experiences and because we're sinful people, we react to those life experiences with favoritism. So, you know, some of us, if, if the person with the fine clothes and the gold rings come in, we, we are drawn to them. Some of us are repelled from that person because of our life experiences. We have sort of favoritism the other way. You know, we, we don't feel comfortable around, you know, the guy with the bow tie. Well, I don't want to talk to him, but, you know, the guy with the leather jacket and the tattoos. Well, that's my guy. And we have different people that we're naturally drawn to. Sometimes it can be ethnic in nature. It can be racial. We, we're just comfortable around people who look like us. Sometimes it can be... Uh, you know, you hear a certain accent. You know, you, you hear a, a good, robust Weymouth accent. <laughs> or you hear, a, you know, a nice, twangy Georgia accent. Or, or you, you meet somebody who has an accent. You're like, I don't know where you're from. You're just not from around here. You know, I don't know what country you're from. And sometimes those accents affect us. And, and we get affected by those things. And because of our life experiences... Uh, twisted by sin, we tend to have favorites. You, you know, who, who is it that would come into the church? You know, what's the, can you think in your mind of the profile of the person that you would be naturally attracted to? You know, kids at school, do, do you find that there are certain types of kids at school that, that you tend to, to like and certain types you don't like? I mean, kids kind of self-sort like this. We're like, that's a freak, that's a jock, you know, that's a gamer, that's a this, that's a that. And, and we kind of self-sort. And, and we fall into those groups. It's, it's just this human thing that we do. And a lot of times, like I said, it's based upon our own narratives. We've had a bad experience. We've had a good experience. And so we, we sinfully put groups into categories. But here's the thing, people. If you're in Jesus Christ, you've had a new experience that should override all your experiences. We, we have a new narrative that overrides whatever bad narrative is you've ever whatever story you've experienced in the past. You know, the new narrative for us as Christians is this. We've discovered that we're all sinners. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we've discovered that we're actually on a very level playing field with all of our human beings. It's called sin. And that we're all under God's curse and His judgment. But that the amazing story of Jesus who came and died on the cross for, for all who would believe in Him, Jew or Gentile, that we can all be saved so that whoever believes in the name of Christ can be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we've called upon Christ and suddenly we've found ourselves at the foot of the cross with all of these different people. You know, this wonderful multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-gender, multi-social class thing called the church. 
where, where we find ourselves with people that probably I never would have related to normally, but now I do because we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we've been redeemed. And, and so that's affected everything. Or as the Apostle Paul's put it, you know, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. In Christ there is no Hingham or Weymouth or Hull or Cohasset. In Christ there is neither wet seal or Abercrombie and Fitch. In Christ there is neither Republican nor Democrat. In Christ there's neither Red Sox nor Yankee. <laughs> you know? It's like the, the, the cross has just obliterated those categories, not in the sense that we stop being where we're from. I, I don't think Christians become this sort of generic vanilla type of person that they're all the same. But in the sense that those, those earthly, natural backgrounds that we have are no longer the defining feature of who we are. And, and we have a, a unity. There's a new narrative. The gospel has changed everything. And that's what it looks like when, when the gospel creates a kind of justice among us where, where we see each other God's way and we love each other God's way. And, and it's, it, it's a wonderful kind of thing. What if... Um, you know, what would this look like in the church? It's amazing when this happens in the church, when the church really follows this. Whenever the church has proclaimed this kind of gospel around the world, you know, historically it's had a great leveling effect on injustices and inequities in society. You know, this is, this is what happens. The, the gospel, when it really gets into a culture, whatever the culture is, it tends to kind of flatten and compress the social distinctions. And, and over time it tends to erode those sort of distinctions wherever the gospel really takes root. You know, you think about um, the abolition of slavery in England under Wilberforce or, or here in America in the late 18th, early 19th century. You know, the abolitionist movements sprung very much from Christian roots. That, yeah, there were some people who were twisting the Scripture to make you know, excuses and proof texts for slavery, but the abolitionists were like, no, look, look what this means. You know, what about the basic human rights for unborn people? You know, what's been the driver for people saying, wait a minute, people in the womb deserve to live too. You know, that's come out of the gospel. That's come out of people being affected by these basic principles. And once you get the sense of this, that what God has done and and how He's created us all in His image and how Christ's Gospel is for all. It, you can't just even keep it in the church. It just spills out into your life, into the world. It's sort of a normal thing when the Gospel really grips us and when this idea of justice and fairness and equality that come from the Gospel affect us in this way. And so when people walk into this, this cool building back here in four months, what are they going to find? What if they found justice? What if, they, what if they walked into this building and they saw people who they could just tell right away weren't the same types of people? Loving each other and talking to each other and hugging each other. Like, why are those two people? And, and who's that? And, you know, that guy, you know, I, I mean, I saw him pull in and, you know, his, his Audi, um, but he's nice to me. And, you know, this person over here you know, looks like that, and, and they all seem to love each other. Like, what is this place? Where have I landed? You know, why am I here? What's going on here? It's like, this is the church. This is the people of God who've been transformed by the gospel 
and who treat each other with equity and justice because of the gospel. What would that do? I suspect that would blow people away even more than the, the architecture, which is glorious. But let's go back to Deuteronomy 16. Let me just quickly look at the second way in which we are to, to reflect the justice of God in the, among the people of God. One way is that, as we saw in verses 18 through 20 of Deuteronomy 16, it, it means that, just, that leaders don't show partiality, that we don't show favoritism. Um, but there's another way, and that is that, and this is sort of the rest of chapter 17 that we read, Another way we show justice within the body of Christ is that when we do make decisions, when we do adjudicate things, when we do say yes or no, when we do even hand out perhaps sometimes harsh penalties, that we do it through a just process, that the process has to be just, that there has to be a a way of doing it that's fair and equitable. So, you know, you get these these two uh, examples here in chapter 17. You get a case study. Look at verse 21 of chapter 16. It's a case study. First, he gives the law. Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar of the Lord your God. Do not erect a sacred stone. You know, don't worship other gods. And then here's the case study in 17 verse 2. If a man or woman living among you is found doing evil, and, and what's the evil? Worshiping other gods, bowing down to them, or the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky. So if someone breaks one of these cardinal laws of Israel like they worship other gods, What do you do? Do you look at them and say, well, I don't think they would have done it. That's one of the priests of Israel. He wouldn't have done that. Ah, forget it. Or, or, well, I think that guy could have done it because I think he's actually from, he's from Egypt. I don't know what he's doing here. I don't know why there's Egyptians here. I bet he is worshiping other gods. Yeah, case closed. No, 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 no. What should you do? Well, he says there's a process. Verse 4. If this has been brought to your attention, you must investigate it thoroughly. Get the facts. Find out. Talk to people. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this thing's taken place, then take the man or woman and to the city gate and stone him to death. Because that's the penalty for worshiping other gods among God's people and God's land. And then you get this, this law that comes up so many times in the Old Testament, verse 6. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on testimony of one witness. So there has to be multiple witnesses whose stories independently corroborate and make sense. And so there's a process, there's fairness, there's all these things. And then, even then, the people who are the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death. So it's like, really? You really are saying this is what's happening? Great, you get to throw the first stone. And that accountability is upon you. Or even look at the uh, verses 8 through 13. We'll go into these in detail. But basically, here's an appeal system. You know, if, if they can't decide because the case is too tricky or too difficult and there's disagreement, well, there's an appeal system. There's a higher court. There's priests. There's a judge. So, so that within Israel, even when they had to adjudicate matters, they had to say yes, they had to say no, they had to enforce the laws of God in different ways. It was still according to a process. It was still just. There still had to be kind of an open step-by-step process. And so it is in the church. We also, when we uh, deal with these kinds of matters, we need to be just. And maybe you're thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying we should kill people in the church? We should stone people? Is that what you're saying? No. Remember, there's a difference between Israel and the church. Israel was a theocracy where the state and the cult were 
the same. God established it that way. But in the New Testament, we find that, that the church is more of a spiritual community and the state is its own thing. It's a different sphere. And so even though the two obviously are interrelated, in some ways they, they affect or they, they relate to one another in some ways, but God has given the sword to the state, not the church. And so the church is not the one who enforces the laws of society. Um, uh, you know, here in Boston, we, we had the Puritans uh, who came and uh, they tried to establish a city on a hill. And, I, you know, I dearly love the Puritans. But did they have some flaws? Yeah. And I think one of the mistakes they made was, was trying to, to sort of blend the state and the church back together to such a degree where the church and the state sort of were, were blurred again. And it was sort of one community where God's laws were ruling the civic sphere. And, and I think God has, has called us to, to not be that way, that there are two separate spheres. So anyway, within the church, we don't have the power of the sword. But do we still make decisions in the church? Do we still adjudicate matters in the church? Can the church even make decisions to put people outside of the church? Yes. We don't kill people, but we, we can say, you're not one of us now because you know, you're living a certain way. You say you follow Jesus, but we look at your life and it's like you've got a different jersey on. You, know, you say you're on this team, but you're wearing that jersey. You know, it's like someone with a New York Yankee shirt saying they play for the Red Sox. I'm a Red Sox fan. It's like, why do you have a Yankees jersey on then? You say you follow Christ. You say you remember the church, but your life is like blatantly and obviously in a different direction. And we can all see it. And so there's even power in the church to do that. Let me just show you two texts in the New Testament just to wrap up this point. Look at Matthew chapter 18, this f- famous passage uh, about church discipline. It's on page 974. What I want you to notice in this perhaps familiar passage is the emphasis on the justice of due process. That even when the church has to excommunicate somebody, there has to be justice and fairness in the process. There are steps. Matthew 18, verse 15. If a brother sins against you, it's going to happen in the church. Go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. Step one. If he listens to you, that's wonderful. You've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, step two. Take one or two others along so that, here it is, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There's that Deuteronomic principle, that Old Testament principle of, of due process and fairness and witnesses and evidence. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, step three, tell it to the church. And now the whole church knows. Now it's getting more public. Now it's getting a little more uncomfortable because now all the Christians are saying, whoa, 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 what's going on? We love you. Why, why are you going this direction? And then step four, if he will not refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as that you would a, ta- a pagan or a tax collector. So there's a process, there's justice. Even when the church has to do something harsh, like remove someone from its, its body and, and say, look, as far as we're concerned, you're not living like a Christian. It's kind of blatant and obvious. Then even then, um, there's a process to get there. Could you imagine a church actually doing this? Could you imagine a church even being like this? I, I bet for some of us, we never thought of the church this way. So like, what's the church? And we go, well, I don't know. It's the place where you get married and buried. And, uh, you know, there's an inspirational talk there that hopefully peps you up for the week and maybe some nice music. And, uh, but, you know, that's really all it's there for. Like, what if the church is 
a body, a family that is following Jesus together zealously and that we, we even love each other and are so committed to each other, we hold each other accountable. So it's the kind of place where as we're following Christ, if someone starts really veering off, there's people who love them enough to say, where are you going? What, what are you doing? And then if you keep going, they go, hey, come here. We've got to help him. He's going. And if he keeps going, the whole body's like, hey, get back here. And if he keeps going, we go, well, okay, I guess you're not here. And we weep and we pray for the person to come back. What if the church is to be like that? What a different picture. Because here's the thing. If we're not that kind of a church, if that's not what the church is, then we can't practice justice. There's no context for justice if we're just, you know, kind of marbles floating around in a box that kind of roll in on Sunday and roll out and have no connection to each other. And so we can't reflect God's justice to each other unless we're in a community that's committed to each other. One other example, though, it's not just issues of sin and discipline and judgment in that sense where the church has to practice justice. Even just differences between believers. You know, sometimes it's not just someone sinned and we're like, hey, dude, stop it. Come back. But, but sometimes it's, it's believers just having disagreements. One sees it this way, one sees it that way. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen that happen in a church. I haven't ever. But sometimes it happens where people just have different viewpoints and disagreements and they have disagreements outside of the church. As our lives intermesh, there's messiness. You know, a real church has messiness in it. Because that's what happens when people live in community together. It's not always neat and clean and nice and tidy. But even then, there's a, a role for the church to adjudicate these things. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This one's going to really freak you out. 1 Corinthians 6, it's on page 1131. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. So the problem was these Corinthians were having fights and the way they were sorting them out is they were going to court like the real court with the real judges who weren't believers, and they were seeing these Christians sue each other. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, here's what you should do. Appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it, uh, is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another and this in front of unbelievers. And so even the church could be a place where we solve differences like fights and, and, and even trivial matters we could sort out together. A couple, uh, several years ago, probably, I was trying to think, it's like maybe like seven or eight years ago, I had two guys come to me. They set up a meeting and want to have a meeting with the pastor. It's always, you know, it's always interesting when someone's like, I want to meet with your pastor because you never know like, what's coming through the door. Like, so it's, it's always fun. You know, it's kind of uh, different every time. But so these two guys came through, and this was a first. I'd never experienced this one. Uh, one guy was a member of our church. He doesn't live here anymore. He's not a member, but he was a member at that time. Another guy was a Christian, doesn't go to our church, went to a different church. And they sat down and they started telling me this, this problem they were having where one guy lived rent-free for the other, with the other guy in his place, but it was on the agreement that he would do a certain amount of work for him 
And, uh, and so one guy said, I did the work. And the guy who lent him the place said, no, you didn't do the work. And none of this was in a contract. This was just kind of two brothers trying to be nice to each other, and it fell apart. And so they're sitting there telling me this story, and I, and I, you know, I, I, time, I said, time out. And I literally said to them, what do you want from me? <laughs> like, I have a sermon to write, and you're like, you know, whining about your financial transactions. Like, what, what do you want? And I, I sort of said jokingly, I go, what do you want, a judicial ruling from me? And they both looked at me very seriously, and they said, yes. And I was like, um, okay. Uh, I, I said, if, if I were to give you a judicial, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this is a big joke. I'm like, if I were to give you a judicial ruling, would you both agree to be bound by it? And they kind of looked at each other and they said, yes. So I was like, um, well, court is in session. Um, uh, well, okay, so tell me this again. You, you did what? And so we sat there for about an hour and a half. As this guy told his side, this guy told his side, and I listened, and I, you know, praying the whole time, Lord, help me, and, you know, tried to make, ask questions, wait a minute, now what was that? Now, wait a minute, when did you do that? And I'm writing things down, and I kind of got the sense, and, and as I listened to it, sort of a, a verdict emerged in my mind, and so I said, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. You're going to do this, and it wasn't exactly what the guy wanted, but he's like, okay, I can live with that, and I'm like, and you're going to do that, and he's like, okay. Not exactly what I wanted, but I can live with that. And they, they prayed, they shook hands, and they left, and it was solved. And it was like, wow, it worked. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 6 could be done. Shazam! You know, it was this amazing kind of experience. And I've only done that once, but in that kind of way. But it's like, you know, we can do this. Like, what if the church was so known for its fairness and equity, and even-handedness, and commitment to do things God's way, that we would even trust those kinds of ugly disagreements. You know, what, what if you guys had a disagreement in the church or some fight, and, and you just picked someone you both trusted, and you sat down in the room, and you said, we're, we're all going to agree to do whatever you say. So here it is. We, we could actually solve things. I, who knows? Just so crazy it might work. But there needs to be a just process. What if the church was like that? Have you ever thought of the church that way? That it would be that involved? That it would be that much about real life? Or is it really just the place you get married, buried, hear an inspirational talk? You know, what, what is the church? It's God's justice reflected on earth. It's an amazing thing. Maybe some of us here still think, I still don't know. That sounds a little much like people getting in my business. I mean, this is New England after all. High fences, good neighbors, that kind of thing. Um, do people really get involved in my life? And, and if we start doing this, wouldn't this kind of turn, turn the church into one of these super spiritual police states where everyone is like keeping tabs on each other's sin and, you know, reporting each other and having, you know, inquests and, you know, do, do you want sort of a replay of the Salem witch trial heresy, uh, a frenzy where people kind of went wild and everyone was being accused of being a witch and people were being hanged? I mean, you don't want to be in a church like that where people are all ferreting out each other's sins and trying to nab each other. Oh yeah, well you said that, well I saw you do this and I have two witnesses. Oh yeah, well I have, you know, it's like, where does it stop? How do, we, how do we be this kind of church where justice matters but without going down that kind of morass of legalistic craziness?
And I think the answer is, again, we have to keep the Gospel central. The Gospel is the anchor that holds all of these things together. We have to keep the Gospel central. The Gospel is what frames all of this. And when we're all as a church enamored with the Gospel, it it sort of holds everything in place. That wonderful Gospel message that on the cross, God executed justice on Jesus so that we might receive justification from Jesus. That's the Gospel. On the cross, God executed justice on Jesus so that we could receive justification from Jesus. You know, God is a just God. He always punishes sin. Every sin that's ever been committed in the world will be punished, period. No exceptions. Do you you understand that? Every sin that's ever been committed in the world will be fully punished someday. No exceptions. Everything. God is a just God. And, and we, if, if we were to receive justice from God, we'd be doomed. Um, I was talking to my friend Mark Jennings, and he was, uh, I was sort of, he calls me every week. He's like, so what you preaching on? And I you know, share my text, and he, he and I talk biblical stuff. But it was really great because he goes, he was listening to the radio this week, and there was some guy on talk radio, some sports channel, and they were talking about these tornadoes that hit Springfield. And, and this guy suddenly mouthed off on the radio, and he said, he goes, I don't believe in God. He goes, I'll tell you why I don't believe in God. He goes, because if there was really a God, he would have hit me with a tornado a long time ago. Which is interesting that he would recognize his guilt. He recognized that his life was not a life that was honorable if there truly was a God. And so he was kind of like, well, if God's there, then how come I'm still here? Because I really shouldn't be here. You know, and it's like, dude, be careful. (laughs) There is coming a day when God will judge. Now is the day of mercy. Now is the day of hope. There is coming a day when God will shut the door of the ark and it will be the day of judgment and all those things will come true. But the amazing story of the Gospel is that God took that justice that I deserve, me getting what I deserve, and He meted it out on the Lord Jesus Christ so that my sin was borne by Christ so that now, by faith in Jesus, I could be justified. Justification is such a wonderful gift. You know, what does it mean to be justified? It means that, that the, the judge looks at my court case and he says, I declare him not guilty. Case dismissed. That's justification. Where we've been declared to be righteous, law-upholding, abiding, perfect citizens. And so on the cross, my sin was judged and through faith in Jesus, I've received His righteousness. The, the, the green jumpsuit of the death row inmate has been stripped from me. And I've been placed in the tuxedo and top hat of the feast that's coming. I look like a son of God instead of a death row inmate, which is what I deserve. And my green jumpsuit was placed on Jesus. And His royal robes of sonship and, and, and the royal robes of being a daughter of Christ have been placed upon you. What an amazing thing Christ has done. And, and when we stand and just soak in the Gospel and think about how we've received justification instead of justice, you know, that changes everything. And even when a church has to do something like extreme, like excommunication, if, if it's something ever came to that, 
We do it in the context of the Gospel. We do it weeping. We do it with hope of restoration. We do it with self-reflection and humility. It's the Gospel blended with justice that reflects God's character. Because God, is God just and holy or is God merciful and loving? Which one is He? Right? It's both. Fully, perfectly expressed in the cross. Someday we will stand before God. Will you receive from God justice or will you receive from God on that day justification? Which one is it that will be declared for you? Justice or justification? Will God say, yep, it's time for you to get what you deserve? Or will God say, Christ has taken what you deserved and I declare you not guilty. I declare you a beloved child of the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we praise You this morning for Jesus Christ. Jesus, we love You. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for taking our rap. Thank You for taking our verdict and bearing it on Your shoulders all the way to the cross. Thank You, Jesus, for Your forgiveness. Thank You that there is forgiveness for anyone here who will simply call upon You. Thank You, Lord, that justification is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not by works. There's no uh, community service program to work off the time. It is simply faith in You, Jesus. And I pray that You would cause all of us to see that. And then, Lord, make us a just church. Make us a righteous church. Make us a church where we are impartial toward one another in our love and a church where we do things in a way that honors You and Your justice. Oh Lord, may this new, just as this new building is glimmering out there in the sunlight, may our church shine with Your character. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.